Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Truth and Movies. Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Not the story of Trump's record at the White House, but whacking Phoenix with a whacking big hammer and using it. There's thunder from a land down under in Warwick Thornton's awesome Aussie Chase Western sweet country. And, call it Generation Kill, Selma Blair and Nick Cage uncaged in infanticide fantasy Mom and Dad. All that, plus a film club classic, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's Truth and Movies. A Little White Lies podcast. James Richardson. Yep, that's me. Hannah Woodhead. Hello. Great news. Sophie monks Kaufman. Hi. Sophie, it feels like ages that you haven't been here. I was never really here. Yeah. But you are here today. Yes, and I'm going to hammer into those reviews. Oh, nicely done. I hate myself you for saying also, that. No, no. <laughs> you've, also, you've also been in close personal contact with two of the protagonists... Yes. Of one of the movies that we're looking at mm. uh, today. Absolutely. We've got a lot to discuss today because there's loads of comments here. There's also, Hannah, been the Oscars, which you sat up and watched. I did for my sins. All I, right. Uh... Do you want to give us 60 seconds on the Oscars? Yeah. What was the best bit? What was the worst uh, bit? The best bit was seeing Guillermo del Toro uh, clutching a six-foot sub sandwich. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was just great. Just really bizarre. And uh, his little face when he won uh, Best Picture, checking the envelope and then holding it up and being like, yep, yep, I've got it. Yeah, not a moonlight moment. Was the so. submarine thing, was that a play on the fact that it's a, a subaquatic hero? Of it wasn't. I, oh. I think Jimmy uh, Kimmel, oh, and yeah. he took loads of stars across the road to meet some members of the public you know and uh, as they do every year it's like oh look celebrities just like real people but yeah they got Gilmore to bring in this massive sandwich it was just really like like ordinary sight. people have every day exactly yeah giving the people what they want big sandwiches oh, right. yeah. yeah I do find those segments really patronising they're so bad every well, year if that was the best bit what was the worst oh gosh it was just quite boring uh-huh. Um, there was a very bizarre moment where they just played this montage of war movies. Mm-hmm. Sure, life is war. Yeah, was you there? Know. A, what was the rationale for that? I don't know. Uh, a veteran uh, came on, and uh, you have to forgive my ignorance. I can't remember the context because I sort of tuned out by this point. But he said, "I served in Vietnam. Anyone else?" Which I thought was very like okay. Right. And <laughs> um, yeah, they just had this weird segment with war movies, and then it was like, and back to the awards. Okay. But, yeah, and it felt so long. It went on and on and on. Right. But, well, they do, know. don't they? Hey, speaking of Guillermo del Toro, we've got a bulging mailbag this week. And even the briefest of dips into it, it can't fail to bring out the kind of magnum opus that Chance Hamro sent in. Chance Hamro, who's left bewildered 
by the shape of water. Everyone, says Chance, seems to love it, but I found it so bad that I almost left the theatre early, which I haven't done since. A film called The Goods Live Hard, Sell Hard. Do you know that film? I don't, but I read this email. He really did not care for Shape of Water. No. I'm actually on side a lot of what Chance says. My feelings about Shape of Water is it's a beautiful film. I mean, stylistically, it's, it's gorgeous and impossible to fault, but it left me utterly cold. I, I just The, the storyline just felt like an exercise in, in storytelling as opposed to an actual organic thing. It, Chance Hamro basically says, uh, can the pod find some critic who doesn't like it? I'm legitimately confused by how much recognition it's received. Can I recommend that he tracks down a review by Adam Naiman for, I think it's for Reverse Shot, but if he searches Adam Naiman's review, it's a very, very thoughtful takedown. Take down of yeah, the film. so this could give him some catharsis okay. to read Adam Naiman on The Shape of Water. Right. I can't not recognise the skill uh, involved in putting it together. And some of the performances as well, but it just looked like the whole thing was filmed through fairy well, liquid for me. Who would have been your pick for Best Picture out of curiosity? Oh, the film that I probably left the cinema most excited by in the past 12 months was Three Billboards, but I've since kind of been retro-engineered with a slightly different view on it by... Yeah. by you know, other people's opinions. I really like Three Billboards. My favourite film of last year actually was one we we're going to be discussing today, You Were Never Really Here. Ah, oh, wow, which, which I haven't seen wasn't yet. even eligible for right. the Academy Awards last year. Can I go so. Phantom Thread? Oh, yeah, good choice. Yeah, but, love that. Yeah, Sophie's completely right. Oh, here's Mark Woodroff on the subject of Phantom Thread. He says, I read that uh, J-Lord, Jennifer Lawrence, left Phantom Thread after three minutes, which seems implausible, says Mark. That's what she claimed yeah. anyway. What are your thoughts on the matter? The article said that leaving a bad play at the interval was more exhilarating than seeing a good play because it's like bunking off school and realising you have a whole day of possibility ahead of you. I completely agree with this. Have you ever left a movie halfway? You walk out and suddenly you've got freedom. Everyone else is still <laughs> trapped in there and you've got the entire world before you with free time. It's a wonderful feeling. It does feel like you've somehow cheated the system whereby you constantly lose time and have, in fact, gained some time. Although the only time in recent memory that I've done that... What like, film was it? To my shame, I can't remember it. It was a very austere Russian film that was at London Film Festival about four years ago. But there was a slapstick moment because I tried to sneak out unobtrusively but accidentally booted someone's walking stick into mm. the aisle which made an almighty noise and obviously made me look like a bad guy. Yeah, but I, obviously I returned it to the owner and then dashed off into the sunshine and freedom. All right. I've never done it. Have you, I've, I've, seriously, you've never I, left? I have sat through some truly awful movies, but I feel like I want my money's worth and if I sit through it, I'm then allowed to okay. be mean about it. <laughs> so, you know. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Astro Wiz, I was quite looking forward to Red Sparrow, which I bet you were tempted to walk out of, Hannah. You know what? I wasn't just because I was sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to write some good content about this film. Ah. This film is truly awful. You, you I did, can't wait to write about it. You, you did write a very interesting piece about quite why the film is bad, which I must admit, to me watching it, which I did after our last edition, I wasn't immediately conscious of the, the negative thing that you... I would urge people to go and read yours. The thing that Astro is mentions is the spectrum, the panoply of bad accents, mm. which really took them out of the movie. I think it can affect an actor's performance also, says Astrowitz. Sometimes I feel they're concentrating so hard on the accent they lose another aspect of the delivery. Like, and what a great analogy this is, rubbing your tummy and patting your head at the same time. Yeah, my feelings as well when you hear an, an actor consciously chewing on an accent. We'll just finish off with one other message. This is from Steve Burkery. I do hope I've pronounced that correctly. 
I've just learned that HBO is going to release a new documentary on the life and career of Andre the Giant. It prompts me to suggest The Princess Bride as a candidate for film club. For me, it is as close to the perfect film as I can imagine. Ooh, that's a strong I, uh, choice. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Princess Bride. Soz <gasps> everyone. My um, oh. This might be connected to my childhood because my uh. sister had a VHS of it and would watch it incessantly. Right. So that for me maybe put me off it I do love Andre the Giant though I'm excited to watch this documentary HBO make the best documentaries okay. so that sounds good I'm glad right. that's been uh, brought to my attention but, okay but you're not yeah. down for uh, Princess Bride as film club I just think club. it's got a very nostalgic feel for a lot of people which is probably why they like it but. okay I first saw it as an adult and I think probably a lot of people did but still it's one we'll I hope get a chance to discuss I'd like to get it in as a film club although Sophie's we were discovering before half the problem is everybody has already seen it yeah it's already a classic and I think a good job of film club is to elevate titles that maybe might be in danger of getting lost titles like Street Fighter which I believe is David Jenkins' nomination Adam Woodward was it Adam Woodward Adam Woodward is going to be on the show next week Uh, and he wants us to watch Street Fighter yeah he wants you all to go away and watch Street Fighter I can only apologise I was not involved in this decision well, I don't, um, I don't, it's in honour of Tomb Raider there's a kind of cult JCVD, following JCVD Kylie Minogue <laughs> it's a very strange cast but we, yeah. we, we, we sort of went through them and you know there's the original Tomb Raider films there's yeah. um, there was a Tekken film there was there obviously was. the Mario and Luigi Mortal film Kombat. Mortal Kombat Mortal yeah. Kombat uh, several Mortal Kombat Resident Evil you know um, the, the Mario and Luigi film starring of course uh, Bob Hoskins yeah extraordinary yeah yeah uh, I think we're going to come back to this a little bit yes, later let's on. Yes, do it, yeah. Unless we're all going to pile back to Adam Woodward's at <laughs> 12.30 with cans, I can't see a scenario that would make revisiting Street Fighter worth it just for Adam to appear clever about it next week. Sorry about that, Adam. We'll talk more anyway later on about that. If you want to get in touch, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com is the email address, at LWLies on Twitter, we're on Facebook, and, of course, there's a comment section at the Little White Lies website. Time now for our first movie, and it is You Were Never Really Here. Sophie and Hannah, you've both seen this film. I haven't. My little summary here is that you're a traumatised and violent veteran, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who tracks down missing girls for a living, but then a job spins out of control and his nightmares overtake him. Is that... Does that set us up for this? It doesn't, it doesn't, but we can unpick it because the glory of this film is that it takes a storyline that maybe might be familiar and because of the extraordinary artists involved, turns it into something completely astonishing. So I don't think you could do justice to it in a synopsis because it's Super. so much more. Well, let's hear a clip from it then, eh? This is Whacking Phoenix talking to somebody about doing bad things. 235 East 31st Street. That's what the text said. You have kids, Joe? No. Nina. Her name is Nina. I've heard of these places. Underage girls. Senator, if she's there, I'll get her. McCleary said you were brutal. I can be. I need this. I hate to suggest 3 a.m. Hotel Carib, room 701. I want you to hurt them. Now, Sophie, you have a very nice interview with Wacken Phoenix, who may or may not be joking in it. 
uh, published on the Little White Lies website at the moment. He comes across as quite a playful fellow, not at all the kind of hammer-wielding nightmare of this movie. No, and he was absolutely at pains to dispel the idea of being a serious actor, even though he definitely is a serious actor. When I was in Berlin, I went to the press conference for uh, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far On Foot, and he was at the press conference, and he's completely at odds with the person in um, You Never Really Hear, which is obviously a massive testament to his talent. But well, They call it acting. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I was sat there mind-blown, and... Um, he, people, I think it's the same with you and everybody. People are like, oh, how can you play these characters? And he's like, I'm, I'm an actor. <laughs> he, you know, he famously doesn't very, doesn't like doing interviews very much. Right. And um, you can, it, he says quite a lot of the time, like, oh, how do you prepare for these really difficult roles? And he's like, I'll just turn up and do my job, which I think is kind of the vibe you get reading that interview. Was with he, him, did but. he seem uncomfortable with the press one? Were you no. seeing him as one of those kind of schedule junket type? Yeah, interviews? he you know he was very charming. It was a charm offensive, I would say. Uh, he was chatting with everyone. He was smoking. He was very charming, and I think it's a very smart strategy to be light-hearted in public-facing roles because you can serve that darkness that you want to explore in movies for that sphere. Hmm. And nobody is just one thing, and he's got access to these very deep and profound feelings that he's able to channel. But why would he want to channel those all of the time? Like when he's facing the press, that's a time for him to monkey about. All right, very nice. By the way, a charm offensive is completely oxymoronic, isn't it? A very interesting phrase. <laughs> mm. uh, now, you also interviewed Lynn Ramsey, who's the director, who I believe had only one choice for the central character in this film, and it was Joaquin Phoenix. Does he live up to this? Absolutely. Uh, she, so she said that as soon as she began writing it, and it's an adaptation of a novella by Jonathan Ames, as soon as she began writing her adaptation, she just stuck up a picture on her computer of Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, he was the only person she could envisage. Like there wasn't one there already, eh? Well, exactly. So this central character that he plays is a figure we've seen in the movies before. He's this lone ranger type. He's So the line that you would have heard in the clip where the senator says, I hear you're brutal, and he says, it can be, is so, it's such a quiet delivery. And everything he says is so reined in. He doesn't actually have that many lines of dialogue. He's transformed physically. He's got this very precise look. He's strong and capable, but he's not super muscly. He's let his built body run to flab, and he just kind of shuffles around, and he speaks quietly, and he's just not who you would visually imagine this badass hammer-wielding guy that goes in to save kids to look like. And in everything that he does, even though he's the central hero or the anti-hero, he feels so full of pain and suffering. He's suicidal. He's a very tender, loving portrait for a character that's typically portrayed as some slick badass. Lynn Ramsey goes to quite, like, lens to get that nuance she has these wonderful moments where he's talking to his mother or when um he encounters a cat which is like my favorite bit in the film he sat stroking this cat and he says where's your papa like really softly and i've seen this film three times like i cannot get enough of this film what a performance it just blows my mind that someone can get that so right lynn ramsey who's previously enjoyed huge success with rat catcher more than caller and we need to talk about Kevin, which I was too squeamish to see. How am I going to deal with this one? Oh, I think this is worse than when you talk about Kevin in terms of violence. But the interesting thing about this is, so the whole marketing campaign for this has been about the hammer. Uh-huh. I don't think it features that much. I think 
you'll be surprised if you go into this expecting a film that is like a violent like John know, Wick sort of John Wick yeah John Wick's a perfect example if you go in expecting this kind of like revenge saga it's it's not that at all it's a lot quieter also I'd really like to pipe up to just say don't be scared of the violence because what makes her one of my favourite living filmmakers is she's very image driven in her cinema she studied photography and art and you can see this in the way she beautifully composes images it's all a balance of dark and light of nightmares and dreams so whatever violence there might be is not heavy it's not overwhelming it's not oppressive because there's this life force pushing back and she just gets this really complicated confusing but therefore magnificent place with her films that is just so the opposite of anything simplistic or moralizing and it's to do with the human soul and that's like a cheesy thing to say but all of her films are about the human soul and how complicated a place it is and yes there's blood and there's darkness and there's violence and there's stuff that could break your heart but there's also this really delicate life force that could break your heart for the opposite reason because it's hope so please don't be deterred from any of her four films because they're all masterpieces i mean masterpieces one film they're all tremendous works of art okay magnificent hannah would you like to give this some scores yeah um i'll give it exactly the same as i gave it in my review Uh which uh is four five five. I just mm. want to say about Lynn Ramsey. So I first encountered her when I was eighteen um, at university, and I went to see We Need to Talk About Kevin, and it was a really nice sunny afternoon in Leeds. Went to the Hyde Park Pitch House, great cinema if you're ever in Leeds, and I watched it on my own. And I came out, and I was just like floored. I remember that walk home, like it was about a ten minute walk from the cinema to my house. And I remember just like I felt like I couldn't breathe. Like I've never had such a visceral reaction to a film. And I had that same reaction to this. I think it is just... Lynn Ramsey is an absolutely fantastic woman, fantastic talent, and this film is mind-blowing in every sense of the word. An absolute must-see. We must also shout out Mm. to Johnny Greenwood's score, because Ah. what a one-two. Phantom Fred and You Are Never Really Here. And they're both really different types of scores. Completely different. But I I thought this time, I went to see it again on Monday, you can see the DNA. You can tell it's the Johnny Greenwood score, but they are so, so different. And if he doesn't get an Oscar nomination for this next year, having lost this year, which was a total crime, he should have won Phantom Thread. But... Oh, it's fine because he operates in highest spin. <laughs> Oscars is just an industry popularity contest, but I, I don't think Johnny Greenwood cares. I mean, I, I, no, I, actually, I, don't think I mean, who am I to speak for Johnny Greenwood? Here am I, <laughs> his personal rep. But because Working Phoenix doesn't have that many lines of dialogue, this kind of fills in for his interior world, and it's so dark and dissonant and yet, like, so melodic and specific. Sophie, your numbers? Five, five, five. Five, five, five. <laughs> It's going to be, I think, on quite limited release. I think there's a Lynn Ramsey Q&A on this Thursday, the 8th, yes, at today. a Curzon in, in London, depending on when you're listening to this. Yeah, Curzon as well. We have done a little competition with them. We put a brief, created brief out asking artists to submit portraits of Joaquin, and mm. we're having an exhibition at Curzon Soho. So if you're in the area, go and have a look at the winners. They are really, really, like, tip-top. Golly, I'm really looking forward to seeing it now. Uh, let's move on to Sweet Country. Sweet Country is an Australian Western set in the Northern Territory in the 1920s. Sam, a middle-aged Aboriginal Australian man, works for a preacher. But when First World War veteran Harry moves into a neighbouring outpost, the preacher played by Sam Neill reluctantly lends him Sam's services, sparking an epic hunt 
and fight for justice. Based on a true story, here's a clip of a key moment. I've come to ask a favour. I need to, uh, need to fix up my trap yard. I was wondering if you could help me. I can, I can offer you rum and tobacco. No, 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 mate. We don't, we don't drink here at Black Hill. We don't smoke, neither. I'd be happy to go give you a hand, but I'm heading into town in a, in a day or two. Well, what about him? Sam. No, I can't. I can't spare him. I need someone here to keep an eye on the place. I mean, it'd only be for a day, two at most. You know, it'd be, be the Christian thing to do. Sam! This is Harry March. He's taken over North Creek Station. Could you, could you go and give him a hand for a couple of days? Could you do that, you and your wife? Well, I'd say this movie has two trump cards, neither of which say very much. One is Australia, and the other one is Hamilton Moss as Sam. Sam, yeah, I mean, uh, Hamilton Moss is absolutely fantastic. Like, just brilliant. And, um, yeah, just the way it's shot is, like, fantastic. We were having this conversation a little bit earlier. I was really sad to be watching this at home. I wish I'd seen it on a big screen. I think it would really benefit from seeing it there. In Australia, um, my grandpa actually worked in Alice Springs in the 50s. OK, where um, this is set. Where this is set. And um, my uncle now lives in Australia and... Um, in Britain, it's maybe not something we're as aware of, the treatment of uh, Aboriginal Australians, but it's pretty appalling even today. And this film really kind of shines a light on that. And mm. it, it's absolutely brutal. It's a really harrowing watch. But it's completely necessary. It's a very, like, sensitive and, yeah, timely movie. This is still something in, in 2018 that um, Aboriginal people in Australia are still having to kind of, like, fight relentlessly just to get um, the same rights as white Australians and a disproportionate amount of Aboriginal children are in um, detention centres in Australia. I found uh, Hamilton Moss really interesting also because of the, the way that his performance, it's almost like an absence of performance. Things happen to him that normally would elicit, particularly in a dramatic movie, would elicit a, you know, a range of emotions. But it's that absence of emotion which tells its own story. And I think that's something he shares with the rest of the kind of Aboriginal Australians or Australian Aboriginals. I'm not sure what the right term would be in this. But particularly him, the way he anchors this, all this stuff happens to him. And there's none of the usual tricks that an actor would use to denote their response. It's a very subtle performance and a subtle film for all its grand sweeping splendour of the scenery and, and the, the, the drama of its actual plotline. What comes across to me in this film is how entrenched the dehumanisation of Aboriginal Australians has been. And, yeah, um, Hamilton Moss, um, the things that happened to Sam just happened to him. And there's a sense that he is powerless. And I feel like other films about similar issues are very much like fight, 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 and this is just what happens when you can't fight anymore and you just become resigned to your fate, which is kind of what happens to him. And it's... I do have my issues with it. I think there's a little bit of leaning towards kind of like white saviorism, But I think it's the closest I've seen. Maybe, maybe Rabbit Proof Fence is a good um, companion to this. I think this is an important movie about a very, very sensitive issue in um, Australia. Mm. And it's also, I found, a, a more entertaining watch than I thought it was going to be. There's a long period which kind of even the Butch and Sundance, you know, the, the posse chase 
in Butch and Sundance, one of my favourite bits of cinema. And there's a similar reliance on scenery and, and just the action speaking for itself in this film. It was interesting, I was reading an interview with Warwick Thornton where he says, basically, I grew up loving westerns. I read this screenplay and it was just beautiful. Back in Alice Springs, guns, testosterone, blokes scratching their balls, horses, cowboy hats, all that. And one of the most important stories that's uh, never been told in this country. But he says, let's get rid of the score. Let's never have a helicopter shot or some kind of point of view that the audience can't have because we're not eagles. And he says, I only have one rule apart from that. If my bum goes numb, the film is too long. Did it keep you entertained, Sophie? Well, I hate to be, like, the cynical person here because, yeah, you really don't get very many films that deal with the play of Australian Aboriginals. Um, but everyone has their own taste in movies, and um, Guillermo del Toro said, your taste in movies is a quest. For me, a film can't just be important and an issue movie to appeal to me. It's a bonus if a film can shine a light on something in the world that can help you understand something of the world, but that should be a byproduct of storytelling and I was on course to really like this movie. It's, the imagery of it is beautiful and majestic. You've got the red earth, these salt plains. You really have a sense of how beautiful yet how deadly the Australian landscapes are. And it seemed to be unfolding in this, even though it's dealing with this very harrowing subject. And Harry Marsh, God, he was a, yeah, he was a villain and a half. And it really had me because it seemed to be unfolding at a nice meditative pace and not, not, throwing anything down your throat then it just kind of felt like Warwick Thornton didn't really know how to wrap up his themes how to end the story and it compared to how elegant it had been the ending just felt very clumsy and in particular this final payoff line from uttered by Sam Neill I, I was repulsed by that I mean that's a strong word repulsed but Lim Ramsey has faith in the power of images it felt like at the last moment he had no faith in that beautiful images he'd assembled and had to sort of tie it together in a way that was unsatisfying to me as a viewer. Oh, right. Okay. What, what numbers would you give this as a result? Well, I, I've been hearing about this for a while, you know, it won prizes in Venice and Toronto. So anticipation 3.5. Mm-hmm. Enjoyment, it was, it was at four and then it went down to a three. So 3.5, three, in retrospect, three. Okay. What about you, Hannah? Yeah, I, I um, didn't know much about it to start with, so probably a three for anticipation and I think a four and a four for me. I think uh, I think Sophie raised a lot of good points about it. I think uh, the ending is the ending is quite clumsy. I will concede that, but I uh, I still think it's you know it's it's worth seeing and I'm glad it's been made. Yeah. Absolutely stunning film visually as you as you both touched on. I'd say yeah, three, four, four for me as well. Luckily you weren't there to point out just how bad the ending was for you, and I, I kind of sailed through that. <laughs> Only now do I realise. But it yeah. does all end in about 15 minutes. For a two-hour film, you know, for something... I was the same with uh, Red Sparrow. My biggest pet peeve in cinema is when a film wraps up in, like, 10 minutes. Oh, really? After spending, you know, a long time with characters for everything to be resolved in, like, the last dying minutes, I'm like, really? Really? That's what you're going to do? Pat endings. Okay. Huh. All right. I wonder what you'll make of Mom and Dad when you get the chance to see it. I've seen it, and so have you, Sophie. So let's chat about that after this. Uh. Mom and Dad is director Brian Taylor's volcano of midlife crisis fueled resentment. Brent 
played by Nicolas Cage, secretly longs for the days when he did donuts in his Trans Am while his teen girlfriend shoved her bosom in his face. Kendall, his wife, played by Selma Blair, feels empty and lost now that her kids are growing up and she has no career while her relationship with her daughter, Sulky Carly, is steadily deteriorating. Here's the moment when Kendall attempts to re-engage with the real world by going for a job interview. Well, look at you. <laughs> look at you. Two kids. I know. Oh, hard to believe. And you have none. Can't wrap my head around it. Look, you either die single or you live long enough to see yourself become a cachet. This is stupid. So, it's the best, huh? It is. But they need you less and less. And that's sort of why I'm here today. Remember how you said, if ever I want to get back in? <laughs> oh, Kendall, that was what, like 15 years uh, ago? Yeah, that's the ever part. <laughs> uh, look, Kendall, you are always a rock star to me, but this isn't something you can just jump back into. I get it. You're going crazy. Kids. Crazy. Wow. <laughs> Sophie, Nicolas Cage said that this is his favourite movie that he's filmed in the last 10 years. I think I would join him as my favourite Nicolas Cage movie in the last <laughs> 10 years. One of the many misdirections that Brian Taylor stages at the start of this film is the idea that it's going to be somehow a kind of Nicolas Cage readjusting to middle-aged life movie, because it really isn't. And having said that, I really enjoyed this film because I knew nothing about it going into it, so we should be really careful of how much we give away. Well, I think that's hard because the central conceit is introduced probably within the first 10 minutes. I didn't realise it was there. Yes, but you are in a very rare situation. I think most people will know. I mean, we can try and talk around it, but, I mean, that's the glee of it, you know... Cinema can be a home for our most sentimental selves and it can be a, a, a home for our least sentimental urges. And this is, I can't imagine a less sentimental concept than this and <laughs> executed with utter glee. Executed being the word. It functions almost like, you know, quite often in, in films and television shows, there's a scene which shows you something quite remarkable and then the character snaps out of it and it's just been a reverie where they imagined what they'd like to do. Right. And this is basically 90 minutes of that. Well, James, I think of the three of us here, you are I'm... the person I'd most like to ask about <laughs> right. the urges unleashed. Could you I, relate? To I you? think it's a very relatable film and it, what's so clever about this film is that this is one of the most common sources of resentments, of bitternesses even. of So many of your impulses growing up don't go away, but they get buried under the other responsibilities, the other urges of parenthood. And this is something that just never, it's been utterly taboo until now. But certainly for a mainstreamish film, and, and a film which is so gloriously, gleefully trashy almost, yeah. to pick up and, and, and just just run amok with some of the ideas was great fun. Really liberating, actually. Yeah, it's a very liberating film. I saw it in Toronto and I... Sure. It, what I mean is, like, when you see films in a festival, you're sort of a bit pummeled and a lot of films just... It's a struggle to engage. This was just, like, this woke me up. <laughs> I, I was, like... Frankenstein's monster just sitting bolt upright like I'm alive I'm alive this movie made me feel alive oh well, that's great I mean it's not a perfect film by any means Nicolas Cage is well Nicolas Cage Nicolas Cage yeah he uh, does it he's full cage he is full cage <laughs> yes but I think possibly uh, Summer Blair and, and, and the daughter as well is very good mm. there, there are some good performances there are some bits that are less well handled but I think you can forgive 
the faults because of the, the neatness of the plotting, the originality of the idea. And in some ways, it maybe touches, again, without wishing to give too much away, it maybe touches in some of the same areas of kind of comedy, horror, satire that get out mind so successfully. And then the neatness of the plotting, mm. I thought, was, was one of the really strong points of this film. I wouldn't say it's a satire because I don't think it really delves into the logic of the premise. The premise just is. Right. And, and <laughs> like Get Out is a very intelligent exploration of something within society. And this is like, hey, this is a thing within society. Isn't it fun? <laughs> kind of purge. That's yeah, what we've had. Let's just run with it and see where we go. And I, I'd like to... Can we just talk about how great it is that Nicolas Cage is go, Nicolas Cage? Yeah, go, go ahead. So in general. Great. Yeah, yeah. I think he has no vanity as a performer. Oh, definitely not. I think uh, even The Wicker Man, which a lot of people are rightly critical of, but his performance in that is like, he commits to everything he does. And I love that. I genuinely love that. I think... He must be the most fun person to work with. Like He's just earnest and all in, always. I'm so excited to see this film on your, based on your, oh, no, uh, your no, reviews. No, we've oversold it. No, we've not oversold it. Because <laughs> I it, think we have. I don't think we have because I think Hannah knows that I'm not recommending this sophisticated, intelligent work of cinema. I'm recommending that something that's working on a more primal level. And it's mm. so... It knows what it is and it knows what it's doing and there's a glee Sometimes in that. you need that. You yeah. need that yeah. from a film. We had that little chat at the start about whether there's ever been any good movies made out of video games and if only someone had made the video game. This is, actually feels a little bit like watching a, a video game. It's got that kind of level of, of amoral commitment to sociopathic violence. Yeah, got to love that amoral commitment to sociopathic violence. And also the use of the song, It Must Have Been Love. When you watch the film... <laughs> And you see the use of that song in that scene. Ugh. All right, well, we've probably said too much because like, I am concerned about when the opening titles rolled and they looked like a pretty cheesy Hollywood attempt to get in touch with its emotions type film. Mm. I really wondered if I was going to be doing that, do I walk out of a cinema or not? Question, conundrum. So I think the low expectations can be such a huge plus in, in terms of enjoying a film. I, I would hate to over you know, to build this one up too much. But what else would you like to say before we, we put numbers on it? I'd just like to, in the whole Netflix, if you like this, you may like... There's this really great film from the 70s. Oh, the 70s, called <laughs> Who Can Kill a Child? <laughs> and that is a great film. Okay. Also nice to see Lance Henriksen in this film, with a particularly winning turn as well. Yeah. Good. Sophie, did you give it numbers? Anticipation... 2.5. I was like, what even is this? Enjoyment 4? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, oh, lovely time I had. In retrospect, 3.5. Oh, okay. All right. I think I'd go 3.44, four, four, probably. Yeah. Good. Next, it's time to talk about our film club, which this week is the decidedly trashy One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. An opportunistic criminal played by Jack Nicholson pleads insanity after getting into trouble again and once in a mental institution rebels against the oppressive nurse, Nurse Ratchet, and rallies the scared patients. Mr. McMurphy, your medication. What's in the horse pill? It's just medicine. It's good for you. Yeah, but I don't like the idea of taking something if I don't know what it is. Don't get upset, Mr. McMurphy. I'm not getting upset, Miss Pilgo. It's just that I don't want anyone to try and slip me salt, Peter. Murphy doesn't want to take his medication orally. I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. But I don't think you'd like it, Mr. McMurphy. You'd like it, wouldn't you? Well, give it to me. Good. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was the second of only three movies... To win every single major Academy Award, that's Best Picture, Actor, Actress, Director and Screenplay, Adapted or Original. The other two, Sophie, save you having to ask, being It Happened One Night, back in 1934, and The Silence of the Lambs. Controversially, because I don't think it was all that. Silence of the Lambs. We've had this conversation. I know, sorry. I Three separate let's, podcasts let's now. Not bring every that. time, we're just going to keep, every week. Brian like... Cox. Anyway, what did people think of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Sophie. So we've got a hefty old email from Stuart Jones. Do I read it out in its entirety? Well, you can cherry pick the best bits if you want, as is the fashion these days. I'm going to cherry pick the part where he says he's a big fan of the pod, because I think we all need that affirmation, because life is hard. Um, And then he says that, although very well made and beautifully performed... I find One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest deeply pr- problematic and have difficulties getting past its rather murky sexual and racial politics. Ooh. For a film regarded as such a classic of nonconformity and rebellion, it feels awfully reactionary and conservative in its overall worldview. So which bit does Stuart particularly identify as reactionary then okay. about the... So a bunch of white men, all who have been locked up because of women, wives, mothers, lying teenagers, rebel against their female oppressor and her black assistants... All of this is watched over by a silent, stoic, and therefore inherently wise and spiritual Native American. Mm. So he strips it back to the identity politics. Said uh, Native American was actually played by Will Sampson, who was actually it was a park ranger in Oregon near where they were filming the movie, and they just needed a big man who looked Native American. 
Wow, that's a spot of fortuitous casting because I think he's really great in it. Oh, yeah? I think he obviously doesn't have a lot to say. He is silent for most of the movie, but um, I was watching this half an hour before we recorded the podcast. Ah, So it's very fresh in my mind. And he gives this really um, very subtle performance, almost like he wasn't acting. (laughs) And um, and I think he's the perfect foil to this manic Jack Nicholson who is just like zooming around like a pinball. I don't think it's aged particularly well. And I think it's almost considering it it scooped five of the massive academy awards i think it's that type of film that people feel good about aligning themselves to because it shows how anti-establishment they are there's a kind of euphoria in identifying with the wild randall p mcmurphy and i think it's a really interesting film and he's a really interesting character because he's not an angel and he's not presented as an angel and yet still you feel for him so I appreciate the spiky main character I don't have that much to say about it well, let's see what listeners well, had to say about it then we got a comment from uh, Angus Davies who says there's little to be said for One for the Cookie's Nest that hasn't already been said one of the great all time ensemble performances in my opinion and my favourite Nicholson performance bar Chinatown hmm. it's a perfectly alchemical is written oh. <laughs> I'm sure that's what it is it's a perfect alchemic blend of brutal melancholy and emphatic clarity. Oh. Now, my mum worked in a psychiatric ward in the 80s, right. and we've talked about this film many times because she has always said, like, it's pretty accurate as to the kind of stuff that went on in her ward. You know, there was a lot of horribly sad things happening and a lot of horrible things happening to people on the ward as was the state of mental health care in the 80s. But it was also very funny at times. Funny things happened. The patients were funny. And... I think the sympathy does come across. One of the things I think that makes me feel like that, though, is probably the score, which I had forgotten how good the music is in this film. It's by Jack Nietzsche, who did it with a bone saw, I think, and wine glasses. There's this kind of, like, it, it feels like a theremin sound, like, going throughout, and he kind of wanted to try and capture this sort of offbeat, slightly weird tone. But, mm. yeah, I, I love the music in it. Um, I think it is quite schmaltzy in some places but I really like it anyway the characterizations are all pretty superficial they're very boisterous people with one or two big identifiers so even though it's set in a mental institution and Ken Kesey worked in one and mm. he wrote- although he was so upset and he was saying with the way that the filmmakers had treated his his story that he refused to ever see it yeah, he was involved in pre-production and then he had a big falling out, I think, with the uh, film studios and he said he would never, ever watch the film. He was very, very unhappy about it, which is, you know, totally fair. Mm. Uh, he was also, we were talking before the pod, he was involved in a government project called MK Ultra, which was where they um, used LSD on psychiatric patients. And um, I think Sophie's completely right. Yeah, all the characters bar Randall McMurphy and mm. to a lesser extent Nurse Ratched, I think she is a bit of a, like... You know, caricature. They don't really have a performance. It's interesting because they waited for Jack Nicholson to become available. They waited quite some time, and they said, "Like, oh, it was really good that we had to wait because we got the ensemble cast just right." And I was, well, yeah, the cast is brilliant, but they're not given much to do apart mm. from kind of act. It's amazing cast as well. Yeah, Danny DeVito in Danny yeah, Vito, yeah, very very young Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, Brad Dourif. Mm. Yeah, he was great. Louise Fletcher, who plays Nurse Cratchit. 
a role that was originally intended for Lily Tomlin, and my mind is blown. I didn't know that. Louise Fletcher was uh, in preparation to begin filming Nashville, and Lily Tomlin was going to do One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then they swapped. I don't know why. She could have had an Oscar for that. Well, maybe, but that... Different things would have been... She, that would have her. needed some acting, wouldn't it? Lily Tomlin is. I think Lily Tomlin's. She could do it, though. I think she could have, could have done Can it. I give right. a revisionist read on yes. her character? Because she's billed as one of the great villains of cinema mm. history. But you could spin it like here's this woman in this position of power, and here's this upstart who, you know, it's part of his character. He's been done for statutory rape. You know, so this guy comes along, this charismatic guy, stirs up all the guys, leads a rebellion against her, and she's just trying to keep order. Mm. I see. There's a moment in the film where they're having a discussion about McMurphy and whether or not to ship him off to another facility. And she says, I think we can help him. Like, I think he should stay here. And I think I had kind of forgotten because she is always billed as, like, oh, one of cinema's top villains. Mm. She's not really a villain. Like, she <laughs> no. gets treated pretty appallingly by him and by the other patients, by everyone. It must have he been. He tries to kill her. Yeah. It, you know, it must have been very, very, very difficult to be a woman working on a male psychiatric ward. In fact, it was. My mum mm. did it. And she said the patients were, like, you know, and even some of the other staff. I had no respect for the women that worked there. I see a reboot, a modern version, telling it from Nurse Ratched's mm. point of view. Lynn Ramsey, obviously, is the director. <laughs> I'd I've like got, to see a woman tell the story. I've got Joaquin Phoenix as the Indian chief, just smouldering there silently. And, of course, Nick Cage is the Jack Nicholson <laughs> Oh, he fire. is! He is, he is. And, of course, the commentary the film makes is that the film is not blind to the fact that Randall McMurphy is flawed. And the point it seems to be making is that... And it's a good point. It doesn't really matter uh, what type of a person this person is. He still deserves better treatment than he ends up getting. And the the system is bad. And, you know, thank God we don't use electric shock treatment on patients anymore or lobotomies. And this, so this is a protest film, in a way, against these inhuman techniques. That's the broad point that it makes and that's a good point to make but I think you could still make that point within a film that has more balanced perspectives and I think free Nurse Ratched from her great cinema villains landing post. One of the things it does well is the commentary on institutionalisation and the character of uh, Billy Bibbert who is the sort of the stuttering uh, youth who's um, got a very very bad relationship with his mother by the sound of things um and the chief as well these people that have been in institutions that kind of their whole life and uh, you see this again in uh, i was watching the shawshank redemption a couple of weeks ago and the character of red who spent his whole life basically in prison and what this does to people and how it makes it so they can't function in the real world and that this is still obviously an ongoing concern in society is how can we provide treatment to people in uh, psychiatric hospitals and people that have gone into prison and ensure that they are able to go back to a life after they come out of these institutions, which are not meant to be permanent. No. Well, some major themes there. Still, next week, Street Fighter, eh? It's nice to do something light, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. All right, then. Well, there you go. Many many thanks for your comments, everyone. So next week, we'll be back talking about Street Fighter, but also some big films coming out. There's The Square, which I think you've both seen. Is that right? Yes. Good monkey in the square. Good monkey. Great sex scene. Oh, the sex scene's so good. 
Wow, all right. Tomb Raider, which probably also involves monkeys and possibly sex scenes. I don't know. We've not been given access to a screening yet, but fingers crossed, A. And Mary Magdalene, which I'm thinking probably has less of both. Yeah. Have you seen Mary Magdalene yet? I have not, but a big fan of Joaquin, obviously. Mm. Quite, quite. You're shifting gear next week with all and the is, old Joaquin. His, 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 his girlfriend, partner. Rooney Mara, right. yeah, Rooney playing Mara's Mary Magdalene, and he's playing Cheeky Jesus. As Cheeky saying. Jesus. Cheeky Jesus. He just looks a bit cheeky. Okay. <laughs> All right. Wow. We'll see how cheeky next week on Truth and Movies. If you have any thoughts, you can email us at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or send us a tweet at LWLies or post a comment on the website. Anything else we should discuss before we press the button mark stop? Hannah? Yes. So our new issue of Little White Lies magazine is coming Ooh. out tomorrow and it What's is it? a tribute to Wes Anderson's new film, I Love Dogs. <sighs> So you can read Sophie's lovely interview with Mr. Wes Anderson himself and his collaborators, Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola. Oh, did you interview all of them? I did. Okay, all right. So you read that and you read my review of the film and you can read yeah. some great dog content, lots of dog content in this month. Okay, so. well, have you done a kind of canine special, no doubt, with the film? We have, canine. yeah. We, <laughs> sadly not. Oh, we not we did there? do a timeline of great movie dogs, though, which has uh, been illustrated. It's really nice. And okay. It's, it's just great. Read. I, I know. I know. I work. Starting there, from Digby and then working down, or, or uh, starting with the Tramp, uh, the Charlie Chaplin film. There's, I there's believe. A lot of Ken actually, I wrote. Yeah. I you know. I wrote this timeline. And I still. It was about hundred films. Mm. Lot, lots of dogs is the takeaway. Were you dreaming of dogs? I was. You know, it's been quite a two months. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that. That's out on Friday. You out on say. Friday. Out on, out on Friday. Out on shelves on Friday. Super. Sophie, how about you? you off to some exotic locale to watch films six months ahead of the rest of us soon? No, I, in fact, I feel some existential malaise because I've just finished a big project and now I'm contemplating the void that is my future. Oh, wow. OK. Uh, welcome to the real world, then. All right, well, uh, this and much more to come next week when we return to the wacky world of the Little White Lies family in Truth and Movies. In the meantime, this has been a Seven Digital production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.